0: Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway.
1: And I'm Joe Wisenthal.
0: So Joe, I think at this point one of the themes that has been emerging from 2020 is the idea that we are seeing a number of trends that were already underway really
1: accelerate. 100%.
0: Yeah. And one of those trends is something that, again, we saw even before this year, and I would say we really saw it uh, come into play after the financial crisis. It's the idea that the economics profession or the study of economics, the field of economics, is missing something fundamental or perhaps could be applied in a different way to, I I guess, um, achieve a better outcome for human well-being. Is that a good way of putting it?
1: Go further. I mean, yes, but go further.
0: (laughs) Um, Well, so I think in the aftermath of the financial crisis, there was a lot of criticism trained on economists that not only had they missed this massive imbalance that ended up nearly taking down the financial system, but also that economics had somehow lost its way in its actual Purpose. If you think about economics as the sort of um, studies of resource allocation and the decisions that go into making them, the ultimate goal should probably be making people better off than they would be otherwise. And I think there was a sense that economists in their sort of white tower, in their academic bubble, had forgotten that aspect of it, or at least had, hadn't paid as much attention to it um, as they should have.
1: I think that's right. I mean, I think like if you look at now, especially with this crisis versus 10 years ago, there's a lot more focus on like exactly what you say. What is the purpose of economics and what problems are people really trying to solve? And I think that like uh, before the great financial crisis and the aftermath of the great financial crisis, there was a lot of focus on the, beautif- the beauty of models and getting everything into mm. equilibrium and optimal balance and all this stuff. And I don't know. Sort of forgetting, it's like no. The point is human well-being and improving yeah. uh, the sort of situation for humans. And I think I don't know. I, I feel like probably always uh, economists would recognize that that was the goal, but it got obscured. And I think like that uh, you see the difference now on the sort of more clear focus on that when people it's like, no, just just give people money. And I think that like <laughs> that's part of this idea. Like you know, a lot of the solutions that get bandied about now uh, in post-COVID times are. the middle of COVID is like, just give out more money. And I think part of the reason that some of these ideas have become more, uh, gain more currency is because of this increased clarity of what are the problems we're trying to solve.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think your mention of the models there is absolutely correct. There was this idea that an economic or an economy imbalance was a goal in and of itself, but people kind of forgot the reason they were targeting that, which was eventually, to um, create better conditions for their citizens. So, all right. So today we're going to be talking about, I, I guess, the more lofty ideals of the economic profession, but we're going to be doing it with someone who was actually writing and thinking about this, again, even before 2020, way back in 2011. We're going to be talking to Paul Donovan. He's the chief economist at UBS Global Wealth management. And he wrote a book that came out in November called Profit and Prejudice, the Luddites of the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And I should just mention that this book was written in a personal capacity by Paul, but with the full support of his employer, UBS. It's a really interesting read, and it gets to uh, some of the topics we just mentioned in the intro. So uh, without further ado, why don't we bring on Paul? Paul, it's great to have you.
2: Thanks very much for having me on.
0: So I, I guess the, the clue is in the title here, right? But profit and prejudice, there's an intimation there that prejudice has some sort of impact on profits. So why don't you go ahead and, and tell us your, um, your thesis on, on what that actually is?
2: Well, I'd, I'd, I'd love to take credit for the thesis, but I mean, this, this comes out of Gary Becker's work in the 50s and, and countless economists since then. They basically, prejudice is bad for profit at a, at a corporate sense, and it's bad for uh, economic well-being in a, in a macroeconomic sense. Essentially, the whole point about um, allocating your resources efficiently and getting everything working is you need the right person in the right job at the right time. That's it. Now, prejudice uh, is irrational discrimination, where you are rejecting a person, not on rational grounds, not on reasonable grounds, but because you don't like their race or their sexuality or their gender or their hair colour or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. If it's irrational, you're rejecting somebody um, from the possibility that they could work for you. And that then gives you a situation where you're not employing the right person in the right job. And that is enormously destructive, particularly so as we are going through the upheaval and the changes of of the fourth industrial revolution, because it becomes even more important to get the right people in place in order to maximize profits and gains at the moment.
1: So uh, explain that last part. What is the connection between the sort of economically corrosive aspects of prejudice and why it's particularly pronounced uh, after, in, in the wake of the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And while we're talking about that, what is the Fourth Industrial Revolution?
2: So the Fourth Industrial Revolution is uh, the latest period of economic upheaval. So this is about artificial intelligence, robotics, automation, the Internet of Things, changes in communication, all of that. Now, the point about a revolution, not to state the, the blindingly obvious, is it's revolutionary. So actually, it's not the technology that matters. It's it's how we use the technology. And that has the power to change society, to change how we work, where we work, how we live, what we consume. All of these things change through the application of technology. That's the critical thing, the application. So it becomes critically important uh, in this period of upheaval and success that you apply the technology appropriately. And how do you apply technology appropriately? Well, that's coming down to good old people, because they're the ones who are using the thing. And so that's why the, getting the right person in the right job is so, so absolutely critical. But there's a fatal flaw in uh, any period of, of structural upheaval, is that the uncertainty, the shifting social positions that an industrial revolution creates, also tend to encourage more prejudice. So the fourth industrial revolution has the seeds of its own destruction within the changes that it's bringing. Hmm.
0: Are there previous, well, obviously there are previous industrial revolutions, but are there any that engendered the type of prejudice or, you know, parallel prejudices to what we might be seeing now that, that we can kind of learn from?
2: Yes, yeah, so I mean, basically, all three previous industrial revolutions went through periods of prejudice. So the first industrial revolution, you saw the the introduction of uh, factory systems, uh, mechanisation in the UK in the uh, mid and late eighteenth century, and that led to the Luddites who were who were going around and smashing up the equipment because the equipment was destroying their jobs. But it wasn't just um, equipment that was being destroyed. You know, you were attacking Catholics. You were attacking Methodists because they were different. And if you'd lost your job and if you'd lost your social status, you couldn't really understand why you'd lost your job and social status, because it was the complex forces of the universe that had led to this situation. So as you were concerned, you were doing your job as well as you'd always done it and, you know, as efficiently as you would always done it. So why were you losing it? And so you, you search around for this simple solution, the scapegoat economics. And it's, well, there's a group, and they seem to be doing quite well. It must be their fault. So it's all the fault of the Methodists. It's, it's all the fault of the Catholics. They're the ones who've cost me my job. Um, and then in the Second Industrial Revolution, we see exactly the same thing. And I talk in the book about my own family history. My family were dock workers uh, in East London in the 1920s and 1930s. And of course, the, the, the chaos and disruption of, of the Second Industrial Revolution caused them to lose their jobs. Of course, know, to be part of the mass unemployment, and some of my family appeared to turn to fascism, because they were being told, "No, no, no, it's not your fault. Everything's the fault of the of the Jewish immigrants, and you know they are the ones that have cost you your job. You're great. They're the ones that have taken your job away from you."
0: This is the black shirt movement in the UK. Is that right?
2: It is. Um, which you know, a lot of people tend to see the black shirt movement as as being you know some some. Uh, Middle class movement. It wasn't. It was working class, and it was deeply rooted in the East End of London because this was the area where people were losing their jobs and couldn't understand why it was happening. and And it was very reassuring to be told, "No, no, no, you're better than they are, and they've somehow stolen your job from you." It's not just the the uh, the desire to have a scapegoat. It's also the desire to be told you're better, and and we've got a simple solution which if we follow, if we ban immigration or whatever it is, we will go back to this wonderful golden era uh, where everyone is happy. It's all complete nonsense, of course, but you can see why it's a compelling story in the chaos of change. And as recently as the 1970s, the tail end of the third industrial revolution, which was all about computers and technology. um, I mean, if you go back and, and look at advertising, at newspapers from that time, you know, a, a lot of the blame then was on women. Women are daring to work and they're costing men jobs. And therefore, we just need to stop women working and everything will be wonderful again. And it, I mean, it's just this remarkable, bizarre, but obviously very simple narrative. And it's that simplicity, which is so appealing and so dangerous.
1: this gets to, I think, uh, a question about, you know, you mentioned in the beginning, this idea of irrationality and in the current age, prejudice, racism, other forms of discrimination, extremely costly from an economic standpoint, extreme costs of this sort of uh, irrational choices. Where does the irrationality lie, however? I mean, you talk about these sort of past periods, like say the Luddites uh, opposing uh, increased mechanization and so forth. Were they being irrational given the information at hand, or does the irrationality precede them in some other sort of meta manner? I mean, they, they, they can't see the big picture.
2: So I think it's definitely the latter that you, you're, you're getting fake news. And uh, this was, um, I mean, the whole Luddite movement um, I mean, the UK had had plenty of, of uprisings and, and revolts in the past. What made the the situation in the late 18th century so unusual was that it was branded Luddites. You know, it, it, there was a common brand, there was a common theme, and there was this pamphleteering. And, and you got to a stage where quite a large part of the population could read, and so they were were reading. You think, well, good, they're better informed. Well, only if they're reading well-informed documents, preferably written by economists, of course. But they weren't they were reading propaganda. they were reading pamphlets which were were lying and and you know you get uh, you know, the Gordon riots in in uh, the u k, which is the anti-Catholic riots in the late 1700s, coming out of of complete nonsense being spread around, and then exactly the same thing with with fascism, the uh, national socialism, the the British union fascists, etc., in the 1930s, and of course in the United States. And very often what we find is that irrationality exploits new means of communication. So back in uh, in the first Industrial Revolution, the irrationality was through pamphleting and, and printing and the fact that you've got a, a literate uh, artisan class and you know, pamphlets were suddenly you know, the, the, the Twitter of their day. In the 1930s, there was a, a, a Catholic priest who was preaching over the radio in America who was more popular than the president was, and he was spewing up this this you know, extreme, racist, anti-Semitic view of the world to an enormous audience but because he was very good at adapting the new media. And, of course, we see this today. The, the, the technology and the communications that we have now also allow fake news and the dissemination of, of prejudice. Uh, you know, technology is very, very much a double-edged sword in this this whole fight against prejudice.
0: So the suggestion, as you mentioned previously, is that prejudice ultimately costs the economy and, and costs people in various ways. Could you maybe explain how we actually judge the opportunity cost of irrational decisions? I understand, you know, maybe... Um, Maybe in the first industrial revolution, if the Luddites were smashing equipment, you could go around and um, tot up the cost of all these destroyed machines. And maybe you could try to estimate uh, lost productivity for the economy. But as economies grow more complex and as we enter this fourth industrial revolution, how do you actually go about estimating that opportunity cost?
2: So this is where things become very, very difficult um, to put a precise figure on it. We can, we can construct the narrative, which you know, explains clearly where the costs come through. And essentially, the costs come in two ways. Firstly, if you've got prejudice, um, you're not employing the right person, the right job at the right time. You're not maximizing productivity. But secondly, also, your decision making is flawed. Um, because if you've got a monoculture sitting around a table and making decisions, if, if all of your decision makers are you know, uh, white, middle-aged, bald Anglo-Saxon men, not that I've got anything against middle-aged, bald Anglo-Saxon men being one myself, but if they're all the same, you're not going to get a a well-rounded view of the world. You're going to miss things. You're going to miss opportunities, and worse, you're going to miss risks. So those are your two costs, wrong people in the job and bad decision-making, particularly when you're turning the world upside down. So how can we quantify this? Well, the problem we run into is that people don't admit to being prejudiced. They lie about it. Uh, It's it's known as the Bradley effect after uh, a political candidate in the United States who was African-American, who always was polling far higher in opinion polls than the votes he actually received when he ran for office. Um, And it's because people don't want to admit to other people that they are racist, but in the privacy of a voting booth, they they are happy to uh, act on their, their principles, as it were what you get is an under-reporting of the level of prejudice. And of course, you also have difficulties in that some forms of prejudice uh, can be invisible. So, for example, sexuality is a very good case where people may not be out at work. They may hide who they are at work. And you say, well, that's fine. They're not subject to prejudice, but they are. Because if they're hearing homophobic jokes or slurs around them, or if they're having to think twice before they speak, Uh, in any kind of social occasion if they're constantly having to edit themselves that puts an enormous strain on them and it is clearly damaging for productivity Um, but trying to identify that you can't go around with a clipboard and say okay which category do you fall into and how does that affect your productivity so very very difficult to quantify what we can do is we can look at some markers like race um, which give us some uh, hints: these are obviously, race tends to be a more visible form of prejudice, as does gender. Not always, but they are generally more visible forms of prejudice. And we can look at the costs that have come through from that. Or we can look at times when we've seen changing behavior and see what's uh, what's come about as a result of that to get a sense of the economic cost of prejudice. So to give two quick examples, in the United States, you can compare racial diversity, In different states by different professions. And there's been some work done on this by academics. Uh, And what they've shown is that there is a significant increase in productivity in uh, more creative roles that are more diverse. So by creative, I mean things like financial services, where you need people who are thinking around problems in complex ways. Um, If you have got a diverse firm, if you're in a diverse state, the productivity of Financial service employees in that area is significantly higher than in a state which is relatively monoculture. Another uh, uh, study that that I looked at is in Saudi Arabia. So, Saudi Arabia has recently lifted um, some of the restrictions on women being entrepreneurs, um, made it easier for women to set up their own businesses. They don't need a male guardian to, to support them, and so on and so forth. And what you have seen there is an explosion in the number of women setting up businesses and contributing positively to the economy. I mean, it's, Saudi Arabia is leading the world in female business creation at the moment because these restrictions have been lifted. But what that's telling you is just how much economic activity was being lost when they had these restrictions in place uh, in the previous uh, years.
1: Let me ask you a question about the sort of upshot of your work or the uh, consequences, because it's all well and good to say things like um, prejudice, discrimination are costly, that firms that don't make an effort to change their ways end up uh, suffering. But, you know, uh, to me, this sounds or this could sound a little bit like a sort of I don't I don't know exactly the term a little bit. uh, You know, I remember this sort of like, heady optimism of the late 90s, where we thought that like free markets, and if we reduce barriers to, de- to trade and deregulate and everything, we'd have all this world peace and stuff, because people would find that it was, uh, you know, the incentive was to trade instead of go to war. And then that didn't really pan out like people expected. Other policy upshots that follow then from your work in terms of the government or regulators stepping in to correct this imbalance, or is it in your view that uh, firms were more aware of the profit potential of making better decisions or having better decision makers would get better outcomes? So
2: um, I think the issue here is that there is a split. I believe that large global businesses get this. They understand the issues around prejudice. They understand the damage that it does. And as a result, they are playing a more active role in fighting prejudice. For example, so uh, fairly early on in, in my work on prejudice, I was writing on the economics of marriage equality, because UBS was um, filing amicus briefs before the U.S. Supreme Court, saying yes, we want marriage equality because you know it will mean that we will be a better business. Plus, you know, obviously, uh, it's morally the right thing to do. But the point was, we were taking a clear stance on this. And so I think global firms understand this because they're dealing with multicultural uh, employees, because they are looking to profit maximize, because they're always looking at ways to make their their employees more productive. Where I think the the real danger is, is that with smaller firms, um, this is not necessarily always so obvious that you may be in a relatively homogenized community or you think it's a relatively homogenized community and you may miss out. On uh, you know the the upside, you may not realise that this upside exists. And if there isn't a, a, an imperative to sort of push you in this direction, then you may continue to make bad business decisions, um, which are damaging to the economy, which are damaging to your business, you know, uh, damaging to society at large. So uh, the U.S. actually has a very good uh, example of this from from baseball. Uh, which, as I understand it, is a sort of inferior form of cricket that's quite popular in the United States. <laughs> um, and
0: I knew that was coming.
2: <laughs> what well, what happened is in the 1940s, baseball was segregated. Teams were segregated on racial lines, which is just insane. And then it, it desegregated. And a, a relatively small number of teams um, became integrated racially. And over the next decade, those teams outperformed in every possible way. They played better, they won more games, they had more spectators, and consequently they made more money. But it still took over a decade after you could voluntarily desegregate for the, the racist teams to start to become racially integrated teams. They, they continued with racist recruitment policies for years, even though it was blindingly obvious that it was doing damage to their business. So I think that there is there's a there's a mix here that you've got the profit motive and the profit incentive and and so on. And that's clearly going to be very useful. But then there is also a need, I think, for government to take action. Uh, And after all, when we're talking about government taking action, what we're talking about here is treating everybody the same, saying no one group in society is less than another group. That's all we're talking about. It's not a huge ask, frankly, um, uh, uh, overall. And if that's your guiding principle, then I think that there is a a need for government to nudge in that direction.
0: So there's a broader economic implication here as well, which is that if you think about the past um, 10 years or so, um, the global economy has really been marked by this sluggish productivity, which has in turn fed into low inflation uh, and relatively low GDP growth. The implication, as I understand it, is that if you do away with prejudice, then you might end up boosting productivity and generating economic growth in, in one of the, the few ways that are sort of left to us. Is that right?
2: I think so. I mean, there's, there's actually two possibilities here. One is that, that as we become more efficient, we create more growth. The alternative is that as we become more efficient, we stop using environmental credit, environmental resources in an unsustainable way. Um, and I think you know, we'll probably end up with a mix of the two, that we will uh, end up becoming more environmentally efficient, uh, which doesn't necessarily mean more growth, but it means we maintain our existing standard of living uh, without doing so much uh, environmental damage. Or alternatively, we we create a, a certain amount more growth in terms of living standards. Now, I think it's certainly the case that, that GDP, which is you know, widely regarded in the economics profession as a rather outdated statistic, may not capture everything that we're talking about here in terms of the efficiency and the changes. And this is something that we've known about for some time, that your GDP is not well suited to you know, the, the 21st century. It was designed to maximise wartime production in the 1930s. It's not really suited to where we are now. Um, so we may not necessarily see this in the GDP data. But we would end up with people having a higher standard of living in the future if we minimise prejudice. We're never going to get rid of it. I mean, everybody is prejudiced. But we can try and minimise it as much as possible, make people aware of it as much as possible. Um, and by doing that, we, we do create a more efficient society which maintains or improves our living standards whilst doing less you know, overall damage to the to the planet.
1: what you think about uh, I'm not actually sure uh, over there like how the uh, the Bank of England has uh, thought about this question, but obviously here, the Federal Reserve in the last several years has taken a keener interest, I would say, on the unemployment gap between different races and this idea that sort of late in the expansions we started to see the benefits of an economic recovery spread out uh, to previously marginalized groups. And, uh, you know, prior to COVID, we saw, uh, started to see a real acceleration in the uh, lack unemployment rate in the U.S. Do you see uh, implications uh, and benefits from policymakers, including central bankers, taking a more expansive view of uh, the benefits of full employment and uh, how to define employment and so forth? Um, by thinking more concretely about these gaps when uh, setting policy or when, say, thinking about when to tighten,
2: uh, when to tighten interest rates? Well, uh, at the risk of sounding like a traditional economist, yes and no. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, clearly unemployment matters. You know, we know that if you've, if you've got uh, better household income, um, your particularly children in that household will have better opportunities education-wise and things like that. All extraordinarily important. But to focus just on income is actually misguided. Because what we tend to find is that prejudice, and particularly more extreme forms of prejudice, it's not really about income and and relative income, it's about social status. Now, of course, income and social status are tied together. Um, It varies from country to country, perhaps more closely tied in the United States than in the United Kingdom, but they are tied together but there is a difference here. And what we tend to find is that if you're seeing big shifts in terms of relative income, then you'll get a bias towards what a European would call social democratic policies. So center-left policies, redistribution policies. But if you've also got a loss of social status, the income doesn't offset the loss of social status. Um, And people then turn to more extreme forms Of politics, and that's where you get either extreme left or extreme right, or populism, for want of a better word. So, I think that central banks can do quite a lot in this regard uh, in terms of trying to mitigate the damage, and certainly for the longer term, where things like equality of opportunity, um, uh, getting the right education, that can can be a very, very big thing. But central bank policy is not necessarily that well equipped to deal with social status over time. Um And so that I think is going to be one of the challenges uh that that is going to be thrown up over the next few years. you know that if you're a lawyer's clerk for example, who's worked hard at school and studied to get to that position and your social status is going down uh, because your employment prospects are going down because your job's being automated away um you know, there's a limit to what the federal Reserve can do Well, paul uh
0: absolutely fascinating topic. And uh, I I mentioned in the intro that that this was actually something you were paying attention to uh, many, many years ago, back in 2011. And you've followed through on it uh, to write the new book. Um, So thank you very much for, for joining Joe and myself to talk about it.
1: Thanks, Paul. That was great.
0: So, Joe, I know there's um I, I know there's sometimes a tendency to to think about um, prejudice or uh, I, I guess diversity initiatives as the sort of corporate uh, fluff. But I think Paul does lay out a very compelling, um, you know, rational argument for why companies and economies should be looking at this. And in particular, this idea that most of our future growth is probably going to become come through productivity improvements and one of the ways we can improve productivity is by being more efficient with our human uh labor capital in addition to our you know machine-based capital and by the way i'm very i'm aware that calling people human labor capital is a, a terrible thing so forgive me for doing that
1: people people um, no, I mean, I, I think that's right. And I I've think been, like,
0: I, yeah, I've been thinking about economics for too
1: long. I, I think you know Paul's arguments and his um historical analogies, um they're super interesting and compelling, and sort of like thinking about like the sort of irrationality of people who only have access to part of the picture is um a sort of very useful frame. And but I think, like, you know, I'm still like hung up on the Solutions Or like what the upshot is, because it doesn't seem like enough to just acknowledge that or for like more companies to quote get it. I think that like you know there's there's still a good argument for like yes, but in the meantime you know give people money, you know sort of going back to the original question or 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 more explicitly you know sort of my question about like uh, the federal Reserve, it's like there are all kinds of issues like yes, we can't um, solve prejudice. It's never going to go away. There's more things to life than employment and income, but also employment and income are really good.
0: (laughs) Yes. Um, But you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But also, I mean, I think we can agree that Probably, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, we wouldn't have been having a conversation about economics and prejudice and what a central bank can do to diminish social injustice. Like that just wouldn't have happened. So the fact that we're having this conversation conversation already suggests that we've um come a long way, or at least we're we're entering uh perhaps the start of a new economic paradigm. Again, what we've been discussing all year, this notion that the events of 2020 have really accelerated some shifts that we've yep. already seen in traditional economics.
1: No, I I completely agree. And I think like the fact that so many like traditional quarters of uh the economic world are talking. About this, I think is huge. And again, like going back to the Fed, like this was like a major thing under the Powell Fed and also under Yellen, like talking about economic inequality, sharing the benefits of prosperity, and there being good long term things to come from when prosperity is shared, I think is like one of the most promising things. And so the fact that it's coming uh, from mainstream quarters, I think is uh, encouraging.
0: Yeah. The idea that economics should ultimately improve people's well-being. Who knew? Okay. Uh, should Crazy. we leave it there? Crazy. I know. Outlandish.
1: All right. Let's leave it there.
0: All right. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
1: And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at the stalwart. And you should check out our guest's book, Paul Donovan. He is the author of Profit and Prejudice The Luddites of the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And here's something special listeners to Odd Lots can get a 25% discount on the book if they go to the Rutledge website for the book and use the code OL25. That discount applies to either the hardback or the ebook version. So uh, check it out and uh, get a discount. Also, be sure to, uh, in the meantime, follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening.